Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I would encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a wet and windy afternoon here in the capital is Zara Ibrahim. Zara is the director of XL Women's Association, a user-led charity which supports women by providing a safe space within Barking and Dagenham. Um, Zara, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, To what extent has this pandemic affected you and your operations in recent months? So, a great deal, I would say. Uh, COVID-19 caught us in surprise and unprepared. And it's something that we usually kind of don't want to be in that situation. The charity is a medium-sized charity that I lead. And as you said, it's a user-led charity. And people who came together to make a difference through their lived experiences and quite committed people. But we weren't prepared for COVID-19. And when we had to go lockdown, we had to think very quickly um, in a, a rapid um, changes that we found ourselves um, and find a new way of working and reaching out to people who depend on our support. Uh, and that was a challenge, but at the same time, it was a learning um, for us. Um, we had to find a new way of working. We had to find uh, new ways of communicating mm. in a digital world, which we weren't prepared or didn't have the means to do so. Um, so it's the people that um, access our support services. Uh, but we were quite uh, determined how we do it and how we move forward. And we try to adapt and innovate um, and assess and look at what part of our work that we can do and what part that we can't, and then look at how the part we can't do it and do it next time better, what we need to put in place. Mm. So it, it, it has been very challenging. It's been um, difficult for at times because the people that we support, often um, we support them in face-to-face. It's people who come to the centre mm. and the resort centre is a hub. It's a social hub place and where women and girls can come. And that space, you can meet the people, you can see their facial expressions, you can see their smile, you can see that you are impacting to their lives. And the minute they come through the door and when they leave, when they're in that space, you you are in dialogue with them. Mm. Uh, And all that we've lost, and I think that personally, myself and my team are impacted where we can no longer do that um, and see people. Um, So we also had to assess our own um, kind of intake on that and how 
and women that come to their various uh, have various social issues. They of course have um, all walks of life and you know different age groups. So we really kind of lost that connection. Um, however, in the digital world, there are people who've been left behind uh, who we can't um, um, give them the same services that we were giving before, and that is it's in our mind. I'm, I'm afraid it's, it's so conscious about how we reach those people. It, um, and, um, yeah, it was mentioned, wasn't it? Um, quite extensively, um, just sort of as we were sort of ending the initial lockdown and restrictions began to be eased, that services such as yours were going to perhaps um, see a spike in demand because people who've been essentially locked in the home for a while and perhaps are exposed to terrible things such as domestic abuse will then be coming out um, of the lockdown and in need of services where they're in. They essentially need to be uh, to be helped and to uh, to talk to other people and have that safe space, as you say. Um, since that has happened, have you seen that demand for your services has actually increased over the last few months as that initial lockdown has started to end? Yes, we have seen both the demand uh, quite high, and but also we found that um, our services had to be remote and mm. field work. So we had to go in the field and uh, as we were delivering food and, and essentials at the same time, uh, there was a team that did the phone calls to just check on um, people in our database and uh, people that is registered with us, whether they're okay, and then go to the, the elderly and vulnerable, give them once uh, a, a day a, a call and say how they, how they are and to check on this. Another team that would team of drivers and people who pick up food and drop and medication and and all the essentials that people need in their homes. We had high demand, so we were going out at the same time after the lockdown, as you said. People were coming to us because we realized this space was a respite for our users. And, uh, you know, just by being there and able to talk about all issues um, was something that was really quite important. And when that lockdown was lifted, we had people coming in. Of course, we had to be very careful the number of people we could have. The centre is a good-sized space, and we could have like up to 50 people at the same time in, before COVID. But now we had to kind of, with the social distancing measures, we had to um, limit our numbers. So, But we always, there's, when there's an issue, we always kind of find ways to overcome that for our users how we can work with them and they can work with us at the same time in order to um, get that support. But I think the physical space is is very, very um, important for them where they can actually step out of the issues that they're going through at home, whether it could be domestic violence, could be other social issues, substance misuse, could be other problems. Um, Whatever it is in the household, sometimes when we try to call them at home, there are things that they can't discuss it because of the environment they are in. So that, for them to come to us, is very important. Um, and the one day with us, we, we have dialogue with them. We, we, we break down we break down these issues and get them to look small and to feel small. And our message is always, you are bigger than the problem. And, and let's break it down and let's go through it. But that dialogue... Um, it, to some extent, it can't be done in the digital if we in um, we in communication. In, mm. um, but not always uh, people have um, luxuries to use laptops or other 
electronics to um, be on Zoom and those platforms that we try to reach. We are reaching a large number of people, I must say, um, but in our minds, it's always those who, are, who can't come on online, whatever reason is, either they have data issues and they're caught up in digital poverty or they haven't got the means in terms of uh, what they need, the equipment that they need, or they have skill gaps and they actually don't have the skills to use online services. Um, and those are the people that we strive to reach them and um, to give them that support they, when they most need it. You raise such an important point there, Zara, and the fact that as good as technology has been in kind of bridging gaps during this time, it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, and sometimes there is no replica for having that physical space to go into and have that human social interaction that is so, so important. And I think we've also taken for granted, certainly pre-pandemic. Um, that's one thing, certainly, that we have learnt over the year, uh, the last few months, as one of the pitfalls of the technological side of things. But um, if you reflect to sort of briefly on the last few months um, and what you've seen overall from a leader's point of view. Is there anything yeah. else you'd say that you've learned from this whole experience? We learned quite a lot um, and we're still learning. Um, there is always uh, uh, room for, for learning and I think one of the things that's striking to me is that how people came together very quickly um, who wanted to volunteer and how people really come forward to um, spend their time, whether it's driving to drop something, whether it is to make those phone calls, whether it's to meet people um, face-to-face and just to kind of check in on them. Um, all sort of our fielding work, I think that was really something that uh, um, we're proud of in, in Barking and Dagenham. Also people who donated things, people who came, not only their time, Whatever they have, um, when they shop in, they'll pick something else and they'll drop it to the centre. Um, we also had other partners who come on board very quickly, and I think we learned the human nature that, um, you know, we when when there are the issues, we come together, no matter who we are. You know, all the differences and all the issues around uh, social um, issues people go through. When something like that happens, people come together. Uh, and I think that was really something that we learned that human beings are good, are good, uh, 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 and when, when when they need each other, they do come together. Um, people who wouldn't uh, volunteer or haven't thought about volunteering their time uh, come forward. Also, what we learned is that one of those people came in and helped us. We also find out that what else we can do. People need their sessions. Let's do the new food. Let's do the medication. Let's help people pay their bills online. If they don't know, we'll take those laptops to them. We will use, we'll help them to do it. If they can't get access to their cash, we will help them buy those things. We quickly uh, secured some funding. And I think a lot of foundation and trust also stepped up to help charities like the one I, I lead, mm-hmm. which is really great to see. And we've acknowledged a lot of uh, London funders and the fantastic work they've been doing to support grassroots work. Um, and I think in general, in the sector, in the social sector, uh, I'm placed. I think people kind of didn't pay attention what um, or barriers they have or whether you are from that sector or that sector, both private sector, social sector, um, statutory services. I think everybody um, came together. And I think that is something that uh, 
we've got to build on, I think, in post-COVID and mm. during COVID recovery. Um, people were interested in what they don't know rather than what they know, which is really important, I think, in leadership. So people really, it was what we didn't know, you know, who we're missing out, who we need to be in a certain place, what help do we need? And those help came. I mean, local authorities lifted quite a lot of restrictions and the gatekeeping services and all this gone. If you need help, they made things easy and simple. And we had formed together an uh, um, initiative called BD Can. And those initiatives, there's lots of reports now coming out how also other local authorities are, are using that uh, and, and adapting it that way. Where organizations in the social sector led the way um, and came together and got volunteers on board and screened those volunteers, got secured some fundings and just went to do help. And that was the word, just help mm. and nothing else. So nobody paid attention to all the um, things that normally that you will worry about. Uh, it, it was just a hands-on thing. And I think that is what we need to build and that's what we learned. And it can be done uh, where funders, social sectors, statutory services and everybody can come together. And I think we need a strategy like that moving forward um, where, where we're in a learning field because, you know, now it's the pandemic. We don't know what is going to be next. So when adversity hits, that we have planned to pull together um, and we, we, we get better at it next time. But we've done fantastic work. I'm proud of all the work that we've done. All the leaders in my sector are coming together. And, you know, no one actually worried about nine to five working. People worked in the weekend. People worked in the evening when they are needed. We went to the churches. We went to the mosques. We went to community centers. We went to cafes. You know, we went wherever we could to pick up donations and to, to take it to people's homes. Um, taxi drivers come forward, said, what do you need? We can drop some stuff for you in between jobs or, you know, tell us. And I think... You know, it, it, it was really harrowing um, to see how people came together. And I think we, we'll, we'll applaud that and we need to build on it um, and find a way that learning leads and how we, we learn together. There's so many important things to take away from that. And everything that you've said there is exactly right. What we've seen is that during times of adversity, people stand up and be counted, perhaps where they haven't been before. And we have seen collaboration and people working together at, at an unprecedented scale during this time. People have stepped up in work, they've stepped up in organisations, and they've stepped up in their communities to keep vital services ticking over and keep, of course, vulnerable people cared for. And that is so, so, so important. And it's a real spirit that we should be able to hopefully harness and take forward from this and something that we can learn a great deal from because it is incredibly inspiring and thinking about um, taking those lessons forward into the future if we yeah. can maybe look forward 12 months from now Zara just before we wrap things up on the show today um, yeah. what differences are you hoping to see in society by that point in time and where do you really want the XL Women's Association as an organisation to be by then too um I think in general, I would want to see um, digital um, inclusion of all round. Uh, I think uh, in, as a nation, I think we need to look at how we access digitally and who accesses. Because, you know, we make assumptions that people can just 
access to Wi-Fi any, any time they want. That's not the case for a lot of people. Um, they haven't got the data. They haven't got access to Wi-Fi. And I was quite surprised how many people told us they, they can't come online because they haven't got the means to do it. And we've got to be really looking at, as a nation, whether Wi-Fi is free for all um, as, a, as essential services and how we provide that um, uh, is a key, I think, moving forward. Because we, we need, the world is changing rapidly. We need people to connect. Uh, there's isolation. There are a lot of people with uh, um, you know, issues around living on their own and access. they haven't seen someone maybe days, weeks. So I think I would like moving forward to see how we can digitally include people, all ages, all walks of life, everybody can either afford it or it's free for them um, where they can access that. I think we've got to aim that. We've got also to look at how sectors in our working, how what build bridges we need to build. We've got to look at it and to make conversation flow easily so that we can connect us. Experts on, on, on the digital world, some people came to help us as a volunteer where their day job is IT jobs, but they came in the evening and the weekends to help us set up on Zoom, train people how to use it, those platforms, train people how to use those communication skills. So I think it was very, very important that we have skill sharing uh, ways that we can do um, uh, and, and other people can share their skills as well. The other thing also I would like is that you know, we have this divide sometimes, um, not only digital divide, but work divide. So we're, uh, we need to have people leading where they're good at. We've got to learn it. So whether it's a grassroots, whether it's a lived experience. I myself are a former child, child refugee. And throughout my life, I've, I've met great people who help other people. So we need to sometimes look at how people can help people. And, and, you know, whatever settings and whatever levels and how we do that um, and those intersectionalities and looking at the multi-skilled people that they have. So that's very important. People who learned throughout COVID, I think they've got to look at what they learned as well and how we learn all that together. Those are the funders. Those are people who, you know, in the strategic world, people who can, a local authority level, um, national government, you know, all age, uh, sectors, people need to look about what we can learn in order to help, or people helping other people, building those resilience. People have to have their resources within themselves. Most of the people I meet every day in my work life, they have resources, they have connections, but accessing those and applying to those, it's a skill itself. It's how they do it. Do, do they have the means to do those things? So I think moving forward, that's, those are the things that I would like um, for us to get better at next time. Also, I think there are large organizations and there are small organizations, but we should not go by size. We should go by purposes. You know, sometimes the smaller groups can do better than the bigger groups. And vice versa, it's how we connect each other, how we reach out to people is so important. You know, some people have language barriers, cultural barriers, some people have all sorts of barriers in our lives. But who can do better? You know, So we've got to look at peer learning. We've got to look at uh, peer support. And people, you know, just generally helping. Uh, and, uh, you know, so all those divides to come down. 
I think that's what I would like uh, moving forward. And people leaders uh, always emerge. There's leaders all sectors of life. I mean, yesterday we had an event, Black History, celebrating Black History Month. And there was a lot of young people there, leaders in their own right. You know, they were looking at examples and role models in, 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 their, in their peers and their young people. But we need to look at and empower people in that way and enable them at the same time. Not just empower them. I think enabling is very important. And that gives permission when you help people, those people that can help other people. And I always, throughout my work, when I'm helping people, I always look at how can they help the next person. You know, it's not just you needing help. But what about tomorrow? If someone else needs your help, what are you going to offer? And these are some of the kind of exchange that we need to happen skill-wise and kind of experience uh, and all forms of way. So I, I really would like to see those things and good things, well, that can come out of COVID if, if we come on the other side, that really kind of feeling that we are now ready or might be near ready to, to help anybody who needs our help. And we can. And we can. And I think that is really a lot of barriers break down, a lot of community barriers that existed also break down. People didn't care who was helping them, who were coming to their homes to give food. They didn't care who they were. They were very grateful and welcoming. And I think that that has to be built and acknowledged and nourished. Uh, a lot of conversation I'm involved in now is how we do that. And, 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 uh, and uh, you know, there's quite a lot of examples. I always say that people should not, um, you know, should be mindful about what they don't know. You know, there's always something that you don't know. And those are the things that you will learn and be open about. It's not just your status or maybe the, the, the line of work that you're in. But actually, the other side, what what are other people? So yes, there's there's all those things. But of course, there's cost involved. But not really those costs. What is not nowhere near of people giving them and enabling them to manage their lives. And I think that's where we really need to be to like to manage their if they have health conditions to manage that as well. So they're not going to need to hospitalize and overload the health services. They can manage it at home. We need people who can study, you know, at home as well. Do they have the means to do that? We have households where there's about six, seven children. There's only one laptop in the household. And they all have to have a lesson at the same time. And they haven't got access to those. So there are issues around poverty. There's issues about uh, Wi-Fi and access to Internet. I think every household should have Internet and should be free in world <laughs> Imagining, you know, the, the, the world that we come in, because that's where we, we're heading. That's where we're heading now, and we've got to look at that, how we, we do it. But also, I think, you know, uh, your, your work, uh, day job, is, is not the only thing that you're good at. You're good at what you do in the evening. You're good at when you pop up in the pub and people that you talk to and you cheer them up. The people that you go when you go to the mosque and you have five minutes with them, you know, and those time that you spend with other people impacts people, their life. So I think we've got to look at how, as a nation, we can do those things. We can have those conversations. We can have those spaces where we can help other people. And sometimes it doesn't have to cost, but we've got to have that mindset. And we have to have that kind of a ways of thinking um, that it's not just what I'm good at, but it's all those other things that, that can make a difference about it. Um, 
and an impact on people's life for better. Uh, I think uh, those, those are what I'm thinking on now and how we can move and uh, um, how we can build on post-COVID and recovery time. I think post-COVID will be here with us for some time. So we've got to learn how we really come together um, on, on, on those um, issues and, and those helping. So the key here is people helping people. So not really the title you hold, not anything like that. It's those conversations. Those little conversations will go a long way. And even to tell somebody, if you don't know, you know someone who knows you. People come to us all the time and say, well, I know somebody who can help or who, where you can go and get so-and-so. I think those, so we all look, tap into the resources, the information we have. It's not everybody functions in the same way. And we've got to look at that. During COVID, we've seen conversation about PPEs and wearing masks and all. You know, but we have the communities now who those information really doesn't drip down. And now we see the result of people transmitting the disease because there's cultural issues within that embedded. Some of it, sometimes I'm conscious about it myself personally. And I have to remind myself and people around me in my social circles. Because when someone has grief, grief and had grieving, you need to be able to hug them and to, you know, kind of condolences if they, if they have a member of family passed away. And you can't do that. And th- th- there is an impact about that. So, you know, if there's a wedding, you have to go and hug the person and, you know, congratulate them. You can't do that. You know, so all those things in our life that we can't do, we've got to be mindful of those things. And sometimes the culture overtakes that, overrides. Then people need to be reminded all the time. You know, there's a reason why you're not doing this. There's, you know, there's a risk why you're not doing this. And how we give information and how we connect is so important, I think. Um, and we've got to look at those and not think that, you know, the, the, the information has to be uniformed or, you know, everything has to be in a line. I think we've got to pass that point. We've got to really make a difference where it's needed. Um, so if there's a particular section in our communities who really kind of need more attention in terms of providing them information they need or the support they need more, we've got to do it because we all kind of otherwise impact it in the same way. We live in the same environment and same area. So we've got to look at that. Young people as well, you know, the impact on young people is great. I think one that cannot be measured long time about them missing schools and friends during the lockdown and now really not knowing whether they are, will be continuing their education in classroom settings or they will go another lockdown and not knowing really has impact for young people. Again, we've got to look at that and young people, if they need any kind of embedded services and support around that, help them through that and look at it. So I'm, I, I'm, I always look at what works rather than what one can, uh, you know, um, can do it. So I challenge uh, local authorities, um, colleagues in, in my borough. I challenge people in my social sector all the time in terms of, you know, what makes a difference, what makes change, how we can move together, how we can collaborate. Um, people who you haven't collaborated or wouldn't think otherwise those are the people probably you need to have conversation with so yeah I think we're learning I think we're doing much better in my borough I think the charity that I lead came the other side and we received quite a lot of 
support which we're grateful for both locally and I think London wide I think people came from other boroughs to help us as well um, also the funders I've mentioned before who really kind of didn't the quick turnaround is what you need and you know how how are you going to use it three folded questions not more than that very simple you know and because the need was rapidly changing as well we couldn't measure what the needs were so we got to look at the new need and presented need often we we work with a presented need which we can measure it and look at what is needed but there was constantly there was new needs happening you know people kind of looking we we never as a charity kind of submitted or, or, or provided people who are elderly people incontinent you know what they need at home to wear it and uh, you know one 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 family said can we get pants and one of my staff said well that's odd one you know how do we provide that I think the shops clothes shops are shut we can only do food but we can't do it and they didn't understand they thought oh shall I get shots you know kind of in the clothes shop but no that elderly person needed to wear pads because they're continent and continent. And because they need to wear that, um, kind of the, the people who were providing it haven't provided for them. And we had to pick up that. We were quite sandwich services during the lockdown. Um, and we stepped up some of the things we weren't funded, but that was social action. That was what the charity is for. You step up when, and we just had our bare hands sometimes. But we, we went to people and talked to them and provided those essential things that needed. I, and I think there's a lot of things, that good things, I think, that came up from human nature. Uh, and, that's, uh, and I think the work now is how we build on those things and how we come together. So I've talked today <laughs> quite a lot. No, um, it's very important. Very right. Yeah. Yes, it, it is hugely inspiring stuff, and let us hope that we do start to see those changes that we do need to see over the course of the uh, the next few months. Um, we are just about out of time on the uh, the program, unfortunately, but uh, it's a shame we don't have more time, Zara, because quite honestly, we could discuss this long into the evening, um, I'm sure, because it's so, so important. It's so important. Thank you very much for giving me the platform, and thank you for having me. I think it's a great and we can share more, and we can learn more together. But I think the listeners, uh, I, I'll congratulate them. Their their hard work mm. coming together. And I think uh, there's great people wherever you go. There's always great people, and I think those people need to really kind of come together uh, and help people who need help. Um, that's all. That's all we need. I think. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. You're so, so right. We do need people to come together and support each other during this most difficult time. And let's hope that is something that we do continue to see over the course of the year, the next few months. And in fact, Zara, just given how there are still many different ways in which all of this could pan out, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the future and have you back on the show just to see how things are starting to change. Yeah, okay. I will will love that. I would love to share my learnings. And as I said, we're still learning as we're going so and now preparing for the winter and we've got an uh, action packed uh, winter uh, social action project so mm. next time I'll share that um, with you 
Yeah. Yes, it's going to be a very tricky winter coming up and let us hope that we are able to negotiate that without too much trouble. For now, Zara, thank you ever so much for joining us on the show today and do also take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. I'd also like to extend that message to all of the listeners that are tuning into today's programme as well. Please do continue to look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Zara Ibrahim, Director of XL Women's Association, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually Uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.